Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We continue on through this last section, our major section, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where we've been seeing that in this last section, there seems to be an attention, or attention that Paul is drawing to the heavenly reality of the exalted Christ, as we recognize that this armor that is provided to us by God is meant to sustain us in our struggle against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, against uh, the devil or the accuser himself. And we recognize that as the exalted Christ, he sits above every ruler, every authority, every principality, every power, every world forces all the world forces of this darkness and so he guarantees to us the victory through his life death and resurrection that christ has clothed us in himself and as so it has to equip us for this age and even more than that not just to be sustained and preserved in this age but to be better fitted for that heavenly reality when faith shall be sight. And so this morning we look to the shield of faith. We, see, we can see how Paul pulls on this thread that he's woven throughout his letters. You can turn uh, to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's take a brief survey of Paul's addressing of faith in this immediate context of his letter. Chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 15, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Again, verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Chapter 2 and verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then in chapter 3, in whom we have boldness and confident access through, him, or through faith in him. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love. And then chapter 4 in verse 5, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you, will, you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so as we 
look at this piece of armor this morning, the shield of faith, we recognize that Paul has already laid the groundwork for them to understand how uh, faith can be a shield or what it is their faith is in that is a shield to them. And so he sets out to show the Ephesians not what they need, but what they possess in Christ. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again this morning in prayer. O Lord, our God, we come before you this morning and ask your help. As we come before your word, we recognize that we are dependent upon you to reveal and enlighten it to us by your spirit. And so dependent upon that in faith, Lord, we come to your word expecting to hear from you, not as a mute, deaf, blind, motionless idol, but as the one true and living God, whoever lives, whoever reveals himself to his people as you have promised to us. May we take hold of these things by faith and be blessed by them in our hearts this morning that our lives may also reflect your kindness and mercy and grace to us. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. What we are reminding ourselves as we look at the armor of God and and I'll continue to remind us as we go through each piece of armor that the primary question in regard to this passage is not how we can uh, take on these things or how we can provide these pieces of armor or the essence or the um, adjectives of these armors, the, the truth, the righteousness, the gospel of peace, the faith, the salvation, and the spirit. For we know that it is not a primary question of how, but a primary question of who. Who is the one that supplies this armor? How is it supplied to us? Whom, whose armor is it? And how was it worn before it was given to us? 
we have affirmed that the answer to this is, is our God, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who provides our armor, the one who has worn our, this armor, the one who has tested this armor and found it to be true. Paul positions the first piece of armor as the girdle or belt of truth, setting the foundation that which binds these pieces together, holds them in their places, that we would uphold the truth. Then the breastplate of righteousness, that which is to protect our uh, vital organs, our, our things most precious to us, that is, that would give us life, cannot be taken away because of this breastplate of righteousness. And last time, we looked at feet shod with the gospel of peace. We saw how the gospel of peace provides us with stability of mind and conscience to travel through a world full of idols and even to battle our own flesh in its idolatry. And as Gill said here, it designs a firm and solid knowledge of the gospel as it publishes peace by Jesus Christ which yields a sure foundation for the Christian soldier to set his foot upon and stand fast on. And that that would be peace that surpasses understanding. That we could be distressed but not despairing. That this peace is not produced by the flesh, but by the very spirit of God. And so it is a peace that endures. It is a peace that grounds us in our place to stand firm. Well, this morning we turn our attention from the feet shod with the gospel of peace and we turn to a frontal piece of armor, something that comes uh, apart from these pieces of armor in some way in the sense that it, it, it precedes these pieces of armor as a shield precedes a, a soldier. And so we're going to look at this uh, piece of armor under three headings. We're going to see faith that is founded, faith that is taken, and faith that enables. Faith that is founded, faith that is taken, and faith that enables. This faith that is founded, it is founded in God as the object and in Christ as the exemplar. It should come as no surprise to you by now that we see the Spirit of God through the instrument of Paul symphonically bringing the testimony of all of Scripture to light through it, this illustration of the shielded believer. For the Old Testament often utilized this imagery to demonstrate God's protection of his people. The first thing we need to understand about this shield is that it comes to us not in the form of faith, but it comes to us in the form of God, if I can say it that way. It is not made up of faith. It is made up of the very God who is our shield. It is apprehended by faith, but it is made up. It is of God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. The occasion of uh, this verse comes to us 
after Abram's defeat of uh, these uh, various kings who form a, an alliance and make war against other kings of uh, the Canaanite territories. And in the process of that, they defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and take captive Lot, Abraham's relative. And so Abraham hears of this and he goes at, in the defense of his captive relative and saves him out of their hand. And he rescues Lot. And then, it, and then after that, he meets with this somewhat mysterious Melchizedek character, King of Salem. We recognize that uh, whether it is a uh, theophany of God or, or it is a type of Christ, we recognize that it is of special character and of special position that such that Abraham tithes to this character or this person. Abraham gives praise to this person. And so we may rightly understand that he is representative at the very least of God most high. And this uh, person blesses Abraham. And when that all those things happen. That is the inferior in relation to the superior taking place. But after that comes this promise of God to Abram. He comes to God in a vision, telling Abram, or comes to Abram in a vision. God comes to Abram in a vision in verse 1 of chapter 15. And he says, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Other translations says, uh, say that your very great reward. Um, this translation says your reward shall be great in relation to the following verses as it relates to the promise of Abraham. Uh, but as it relates, or, it, or other translations relate it to God being his shield. Either way, the emphasis is that God is a shield, is to be a shield to Abram. God is the one to go before Abram to give him uh, uh, blessing and not cursing and the promise that he would give him an offspring and not just uh, one offspring but a physical progeny that is of the numbers greater than or as the number of stars in the heaven. And we also know that scripture makes reference to this as God also promising a spiritual progeny that would come in the likeness of Abram's faith that would be uh, greater than the sands of the sea and greater than the stars of the heaven that would come through a offspring, an, an offspring or the offspring of Abraham. And so we recognize here that God is to be a shield before Abraham a shield, and this shield is reinforced by what? A promise of blessing. And Abraham apprehends it by faith. Turn now as we turn from Abraham to Israel and Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 31.
nope, I went down too far. 33, excuse me, 33:29. Deuteronomy 33:29. I don't have extra verses in my Bible. Deuteronomy 33 in verse 29. That's why it's more familiar. Moses is blessing the, the different tribes of Israel. At the end of this blessing, he tells the people of Israel, or he, he, he then turns to the Lord in prayers. He, he's blessing Israel, the tribes of Israel. Then he turns to the Lord in praise, and he says, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help. And the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you. And you will tread upon their high places. We know the setting of Deuteronomy. The people of Israel about to take a, a possession of the promised land. And they are to trust the Lord as their forerunner. As their forebearer. As their shield. To go before them. And cause the enemies to cringe before them. Turn now as we go from Abraham to Israel, and now we look at David in 2 Samuel chapter 22. David praising the Lord for being delivered from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He, he composes this psalm that's uh, recomposed in Psalm chapter 18. And we see here in verse 31, David's words, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress. And he sets the blameless in his way. Consider David having been shielded. He recognizes that his preservation, his special preservation from his enemies and the hand of Saul comes by the way of God being a shield to him that he would run and take refuge from his enemies and so be preserved. Let's continue on in our survey of, of the Old Testament now to Psalm 5. We read it this morning. Or I will turn to Psalm 115. I'll read for us one verse out of our call to worship. Psalm 5, verse 12. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord... You surround him with favor as with a shield. So not only is it a refuge for those assailed, not only is it a, a foreplate for those in battle, but it is a comfort of God's favor to those uh, who have faith in him. Psalm 115 Beginning in verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. So not only do we see this 
frontal plate that goes before us in our battles. Not only do we see this preserving presence that protects us from our enemies and those that would assail us, and not only do we see it as a comfort and an assurance of God's favor, but here we see it as a blessing to those that put their trust in the Lord. And so we see that the object of faith, that which faith take, makes use of, as John Gill says, as a shield, so God himself is a shield. His divine perfections as his power, faithfulness, truth, and immutability, which encompass the saints as a shield and are opposed to the temptations of Satan by faith. So first, we recognize that in faith that is founded, it's founded in God as the object. Our shield of faith is not made up of our faith. Our shield of faith is made up of God in himself. And if it is to be prized as um, a characteristic, a blessing, a virtue, a grace of the Old Testament saint, as we took that survey, then it would be fitting that Christ would be a man of faith. Here we'll spend a little time explaining this because it may not come first to your ears as something acceptable that Christ would have faith. Let us first go to scripture before we turn to helpful guides. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We will come back to Hebrews chapter 11, but we know that well as it's uh, the hall of faith, as it's, set, as, it, as it's known, and it enumerates many men who through uh, the scriptures have had faith in God's promises and have obtained salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, it says there's a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. These, these men of old surround us. And so that we are to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so we see that we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. That is, Jesus is the originator. He doesn't only give us, of, give us our faith, but he gives us of what he has in his humanity. But what kind of faith would he possess? That is a question we can ask of this, because if Christ has faith, is there no distinction between Christ's faith and our faith, and to which we would say, Yes and amen, there is a distinction. Herming Bavink recognizes this when he says, Naturally, faith for Christ 
was not, as it is for us, trust in the grace and mercy of God. For what grace and mercy did the one who needed no redeeming put his faith in? There would be no mercy that he'd trust the Lord for because he was in need of no mercy because he erred or sinned not. And he, he continues, he said, for this feature is something faith only obtained as a result of the state of sin in which we find ourselves. By nature, faith for Adam and Christ was nothing other than the act of clinging to the word and promises of God, a holding on to the invisible one. And that is what Jesus did as well. In the case of Christ, that faith and that hope were not wavering and hesitant, but firm and strong. So it, the faith that Christ possessed was one of clinging to the word and promises of God and holding on to the invisible one. It is not of my intention, nor is there time to speak of the different views as it relates to whether or not Christ in his humanity had a vision of the Father or of God as, we, as what's known as a, the beatific vision, what we're going to receive in our glorified bodies, a vision of God. But it is to say that in his humanity, Christ had to hold onto what he could not see. He had to hold onto the hold on to it by the word and promises of God. It's why we read in the Psalms over and over again. I did the most high-level survey we could of the idea of God as preserver, protector, strength, and shield. But all throughout the Psalms, the psalmists pour out their heart to God to be their strength, to be their shield, to be their protector. Why? Because they're assailed over and over again by many enemies. And we know that the Psalms attended our Savior, informed him as he learned as a man of his role, of his place, of his position, of his divinity. And so it would have bolstered him to put his trust in those words and promises of God, but without wavering, without hesitancy, but uh, with firmness and with strength. We see that this faith that Christ possessed, as I said, is enumerated in the Psalms. We see it preeminently in his humiliation and suffering. Hopefully you have Hebrews still open and you can turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren, speaking of Christ, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for sins. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 
we recognize that he was a merciful, he became a merciful and faithful high priest. That means he acted upon faith. We see this probably uh, in its most barest form on the cross in Christ's cry of dereliction, where in his humanity he must cry out to the God who has forsaken him on the cross when the sins of, of, of all of his elect came upon him and the wrath of God was poured out upon him, he cries out to the Lord in those well-known words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that, there was no wavering, no hesitancy of his faith. It was firm and it was strong. It was upheld by the very spirit of God. Mark Jones observes, as we have looked, as we made passing comment of Adam and Christ and the likeness they shared, he says, after all, Whatever grace we receive from Christ, he must possess it preeminently in himself, including faith. He is the author, or he is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So faith is, is first founded in God as the object and in Christ as the exemplar. As we look at the shield of faith, we separate not or we form it not in the likeness of ourselves or in, in the uh, strength of our own faith, but we attribute to it the strength of God and we recognize the possession that Christ had and was victorious as he possessed it. And so for us, there's a faith that is founded and now it is a faith that is taken a faith that is, is, should be obvious to us that this faith now is to be taken in, into every day, into every battle. In addition to all, Ephesians 6 again, taking up the shield of faith which, which you, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. This shield of faith is to be taken into every day. We we would not leave it at home. We would not set it down after taking possession of it. But it becomes to us a surety for us. Faith is the means by which we flee to God for refuge. It is how we cling to God and find in him comfort and protection in times of difficulty and distress. It is a reminder to us that we are protected in times of difficulty and stress. And it is also a helpful teacher for us in times of not difficulty and not distress. That it is not your own strength that has pushed away these things and now you receive blessing, but it is by the shielding of God that you have found a time of gladness, a time of temporal blessing. John Gill says that the shield of faith is above all to be taken 
as being, most use, being the most useful part of the Christian armor. Or withal, with the rest that is to be taken and by no means neglected, and it is to be used in all, in every temptation of Satan, in every conflict with which that enemy or any other comes before you. Consider, brothers, that in our time of testing and trial, in our time of fatherly discipline, we are especially sensitive to the suggestions of Satan, to the, to the gnawing or the drawing of our flesh, to the influence of this world, to understand that we are not worthy. This, this must mean that you are not in God's favor. This must mean that you, you are not a child of God. And so we must come and with the shield of faith know that these things come to us because we are children of God. Because a good father disciplines his children. He disciplines those he loves. Why? Because he fits us for a greater place. He's fitting us for a greater time than this. The highest height of this age, of our lives, it pales in comparison to the beginning of our time in the age to come. I hesitate to say the lowest time in the age to come, so the beginning of our time in the age to come will far exceed the greatest joy, the greatest success, the greatest that you've ever received in this life. And so how much more as we let go of this world through the discipline and instruction of our Father, how much greater it is that we apprehend these things now by faith and trust in God as our shield and Christ as our exemplar. What is this faith that we apprehend these things by? Hercules Collins in, the orth, in an Orthodox catechism, mirroring the Heidelberg Catechism, question 21, asks, what is true faith? True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. Something that needs a little unpacking, and helpfully uh, a brother out uh, in the Midwest, D. Scott Meadows, comments on this question. He says, too often... Christ is almost altogether eclipsed by the fact, by the act of conversion, which is credited rather than Christ for the new state of things. Something that I've brought before you before, but I find great encouragement in, and so I bring it before you again. He says, we might ask such a one, why are you going to heaven? And hear this reply, because I accepted Christ. There are many other forms of that because I prayed a prayer, because I had an experience, because I went to a certain place. A better instructed Christian more likely would say something like, because Christ lived for me, died for me, and rose again and promises me eternal life. 
Do you see the difference? One seems to have faith in faith, the other faith in Christ. What matters is not, believe, is not believing that you are saved. Many professing Christians are mistaken about this, but believing in Christ who saves. Another way of looking at true and saving faith is that it comes to us in a threefold way. It's expressed there in that answer, but here I can sum it up, is that our faith first possesses the knowledge, possesses knowledge like Christ died for sinners. Next, faith assents to its verity. Truly, Christ died for sinners. That is a true statement. Christ died for sinners is a true statement. There's a possession of knowledge. There's an assent to its truth. And then finally, there's a trust in it as your own. Truly, Christ died for sinners, namely me, so I trust my sins are forgiven. This is the faith that apprehends the shield that protects us. This is the faith that is the conduit, that is the instrument by which we come to saving a a right standing before God because it is in the substance of Christ and his completed work. It ultimately is in the substance of God himself and his benevolence and grace to us and giving us a savior by which we only need to have faith in and so attain eternal life. Michael Allen says, faith does not mark merely the inception point of the Christian life, but the ongoing posture of children of God, consciously receiving all they have from their Father in heaven. This is the faith that is to be taken in every battle, in every place, in every day that the believer exists in. This faith that is founded in God and in Christ the exemplar and is to be taken is also the faith that enables the advance. We can consider the illustration before us that if a soldier or a a phalanx of of soldiers are advancing and they're shielded soldiers, they uh, advance via their shields. It is of maybe of the last straw or, or the last cry that they remove the shield and run haphazardly into the battle. But the trained soldier, the ones that are protected, advance via their shielding. This we see, and it was explained to us or, or, or mentioned to us in Hebrews 12. Did you catch it in Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2? Therefore, we have such a so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The shield of faith enables us to advance, the shield of faith enables us to finish the course to endure the race that is set before us. What is referenced there as so great a cloud of witnesses comes to us in Hebrews chapter 11. We won't take the time to go through every character uh, noted here in uh, the hall of faith, but there is of the same 
uh, substance of their faith, though varying qualities, especially if we look at the life of, of Abraham and of Noah. We recognize the varying qualities of, of Moses' faith. But of their substance, it says, all these died in faith in verse 13 without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We recognize that these men had varying qualities of faith even in their own life but their substance was all of one. It was all in one. And it produced in them all one faith, one life. Gerhardus Voss, he comments on this passage. He says, in the last analysis, faith alone made possible every one of the acts described here in Hebrews chapter 11. That is an underlying frame of mind. It enabled all these other graces to function and to produce the rich fruitage here set forth. The obedience, the self-sacrifice, the patience, the fortitude of all these, the exercise in the profound Christian sense would have been impossible if the saints had not had through faith their eye firmly fixed on the unseen and promised world. Whether the call was to believe or to follow, to do or to bear, the obedience to it sprang not from any earth-fed sources, but from the infinite re reservoir of strength stored up in the mountain land above. If Moses endured it, endured, it was not due to the power of resistance in his human frame, but because the weakness in him was compensated by the vision of him who is invisible." is that these acts portrayed were not in and of themselves meritorious, but that they being the fruit of faith in one who is faithful to his promises will bring about what he has said. This is our shield of faith, brothers and sisters. This is what brings to us and provides and enables us advancement in this life. If there be any advancement in the Christian life, it will not be done without faith in the one who ordains the advancement. Faith in the one who enables the advancement. Faith in the one who has accomplished the victory in the advancement. The shield of faith is to be the lead piece of armor so that the Christian dare not step where refuge in God is not found. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings and mercies afforded to us in Christ. We thank you that we are able to look to him as our exemplar and see that in him all things have been accomplished so that we are only left to put our faith 
to know and to ascend and to trust in Christ alone. Though we are assailed by many things, by many flaming darts of the evil one, though our faith may be weak, if founded in you alone, those darts may never touch us. May we see this shield go before us. May we rejoice in its presence as we rejoice in you. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us even to the end of the age. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.